I'm Shay Candish, General Secretary and the host of The Shift with Shay. Today we're on location at the 78th New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association Annual Conference in Sydney. In a special edition of the podcast, you'll hear from voice campaigners Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. Together they spell out all you need to know about the referendum and address some of the common misconceptions. A quick reminder that today's episode is recorded on Gadigal land. Here at The Shift with Shay, we acknowledge and pay respects to traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Um, Delegates, it is my absolute great honour to introduce Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien, who have made time uh, for us today to discuss the Voice to Parliament handbook. I'd like to invite... Um, them up onto stage as well as Liz McCall who's one of our executive councillors and Liz is going to moderate the session. Uh, Liz is also an RN at Byron Central Hospital. So please make them welcome. Hi everyone. I'm here in a different capacity now. With the referendum on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament due to occur in the coming months, and we actually have a date now, which is fabulous. Delegates who have been too time poor or otherwise occupied to dedicate much attention to it may still have questions. Fortunately, when we reached out to these two lovely gentlemen, they agreed to pop by our conference and share their insights. The New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association is proudly supporting a yes vote in the upcoming voice referendum. So in the interest of cutting through the information, we've we've asked both the Voice to to Parliament handbook authors, Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien, to join us to discuss what the voice is and how it will make a difference for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Torres is a Kaurareg Aboriginal and Kalkalgo Arambolay Torres Strait Islander, father of six. He was a wharf labourer when he became a delegate and then an official and is now assistant gen sec of the MUA. He's authored six books, is an Uluru statement from the Heart Signatory and has spent the last six years campaigning for The Voice. He's chairperson of the Northern Territory Indigenous Indigenous Labor Network and a director on the Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition Board. Kerry O'Brien is one of Australia's most respected multi-Walkley award-winning journalists and authors. His acclaimed career has spanned national current affairs, politics, economics, investigative journalism, and he was press secretary to Gough, Gough Whitlam. (laughs) Kerry Kerry spent over 30 years in public broadcasting, including This Day Tonight, Late Line, 7.30 Report and Four Corners. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. You are in friendly company here among Nurses and Midwives Association delegates and we're thrilled to have you here. Let's dive into some questions. Thomas, you first. Can you share with us how the handbook came about? Yeah, um, I, it was uh, getting uh, towards, um, well, when, when um, Albanese uh, won the election, uh, I thought it was important to have something that our supporters could use, you know. I, I was thinking something that was small and 
uh, cheap and easy to post, uh, something that could guide people on advocating uh, for the, the, the change um, to include a voice in the Constitution for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that was the idea. Uh, originally, we are going to self-publish, uh, myself and the editor um, of the book, uh, Bernadette Foley, uh, but she suggested we try and um, convince Hardy Grant to um, publish it, and they accepted. And uh, it was getting close to the end of the year and running out of time, and I knew that people would need this as soon as possible, so I thought I'd take on a co-author, uh, and I thought of, uh, I couldn't think of anyone better than Kerry O'Brien to join me with his depth of experience and uh, um, covering Indigenous affairs, among many other things. Thank you. Kerry, it might feel like an obvious question, but for those who weren't eligible to vote in the last one, back in 1999, what is a referendum? Well, let's start with this. That's actually our constitution. It's the size of a passport. And, and uh, when it suits people, <clears throat> they try and build a kind of mystique around this thing, like it's some sacred document. And yes, it has immense significance to us as a nation because it is, if you like, it's the rule book. Uh, by which uh, our democracy is framed through legislation in parliaments. Uh, but what the, co what the Constitution is, is, it's like a series of dot points. It's a series of principles to frame our democracy. And then the flesh around the bones of this Constitution are supplied through parliaments. And that's really important uh, in the terms of this referendum which I'll come to in a second, but, um, but the, the point of having referendums is uh, that if you want to change any aspect of the Constitution, then you have to put it to a vote of the Australian people. And it's a little more complicated than that in the sense that it's not just, you don't just require a majority national vote uh, to be able to introduce an amendment uh, to the Constitution, you have to have a majority of four out of six states. The territories don't get a look in, uh, in that sense. The, the Territorians get a vote and that goes to the national tally, but the territories don't count in terms of the state majorities. So we need at least four states to vote yes along with that national majority. Uh, and the point about, uh, about the referendum in this case is that it's a very simple proposition that's being put to the nation, which is, uh, are we going to vote yes or are we going to reject the notion of uh, the recognition uh, of first Australians uh, and their importance to this nation's history uh, and their 65,000 plus continuous years of civilization, the oldest existing uh, continuous civilization in world history? And secondly, as a part of that recognition, to enshrine in the Constitution the right of Indigenous people to actually be heard. Not to tell the rest of us what to do, not to dictate to the Parliament, but simply to be heard. And all the stuff about, oh yes, but what's it going to look like? Well, just as an illustration, so we understand it better, 
when the Constitution was written and all those dot points were, were uh, taking shape on the page, one of them uh, was to bring into creation uh, a High Court. The institution of the High Court of Australia uh, as the pinnacle, if you like, of the justice system, which was to be separate uh, from uh, the Parliament, the separation of powers and the rule of law. The High Court was at the pinnacle of that. Well, it took two years uh, for that early Parliament to establish what the High Court would look like, how many judges it would have, the terms of reference by which they would, uh, they would do their jobs. Uh, and so these are the, the two very distinct aspects of understanding a process of making change to the Constitution. We, the public, make the decision on the change, the principle of the change, and Thomas will take you through the wording at some point in our discussion today, but there's that principle which is in the referendum and the substance and the shape, the form, and, and how the voice to Parliament as a voice able to make recommendations to executive government and the parliament whenever there is a policy issue that is in development which will have significant impact back on indigenous communities around Australia, they will get to make those representations and then it's up to government and the parliament to determine uh, what, uh, how much, if any, or if all, of those recommendations are then incorporated into the legislation. Two very distinct things. So do we need to know we, know, we we know the principles on which the voice will be established and it will be a certain number of people who will be, will be elected from within uh, their communities to represent those communities on these policy issues. We know that and, and there's a, again there's a set of principles around what would drive that voice. But it will be up to the government and the parliament in the end to determine how many people it will be, what the process of election will be, and so on. So this referendum, straightforward, simple question, simple yes or no. And to me, it's the purest form of democracy that we have, where we have a very direct say on a guiding principle that we want to, uh, to become a part of our constitution. Thank you. Thomas, next one's for you. How does the voice link to the Uluru Statement from the Heart? Yeah, thanks, Liz. Just um, before I go into that, the guiding principle itself is simply recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples and a voice so that we can make representations on the matters that affect us. That's it. That's the principle. I don't know why anyone would say no to that. Um, but the call for it itself... The call for it came from the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, was a unique opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to come together um, across this country in regional dialogues, so covering the entire continent and adjacent islands, 13 regional dialogues, three days each, well informed, led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with experts there to answer our questions, a formula to applied to, uh, applied to make sure um, that participants were from uh, a cross-section of experiences and perspectives. Uh, so it wasn't just the loudest of our people, you know, those that were used to being heard that were, uh, could skew the results, but also the quieter advocates, the healers, uh, you know, those types of things, and also cultural authority. Um, and uh, those 
those dialogues elected delegates to go to a final culminating convention in the heart of the nation at Uluru. And it was in these dialogues and at Uluru that we considered the lessons from our past. Um, and the lessons that we learnt is, firstly, and this should be understandable to all of us, you know, this is, we're, we're union members, right? When you have a voice, you make greater progress, right? When you don't have a voice, you're easily exploited and ignored and divided and degraded. You can't coherently take forward your interests, you know, and your needs. So we decided when we have a voice, just looking at the history, when we've had a voice, we make great, great progress. And when it's taken away, the gap widens in life expectancy and all those other measures that we have failed to close. Um, in 2023, the Closing the Gap report has four of the measures getting worse, only four of them on target, you know. So um, the other thing that we looked at um, at the Uluru Convention and at, in those dialogues is that we have established voices because it's a natural thing to do for a large group of people. Uh, and we established representation in the 1920s, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. Following that was the Aboriginal Advancement League and the Australian Aborigines League. Uh, there was FACATSI, um, and all of those voices that I just mentioned, and that's not an extensive list, but what is in common is that they were all silenced. They were all silenced by pure intimidation because the authorities could steal our children, they could direct us to work without pay, they could decide who we could marry, they put curfews on us, they could exile us from country and separate us from our families. All of those things were completely legal under state legislation and they used those powers to silence those leaders of those voices and silence us in doing so. And then from 1967, we looked at the, the voices that we established after that. Uh, voices established under one, one prime minister, under a government. Uh, the next one would come along and always take it away. There was the NAC under Whitlam. The NACC, you know, Fraser came in, got rid of that one, established the NACC. Then Hawke came in, got rid of that one, established the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And then Howard came in and got rid of that one. And that's when we saw the gap widening. Uh, so we couldn't ignore those lessons from the past. We need a voice. We understand that, right? But for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, our voice is always taken away. So we must enshrine it in the constitution to see that it can consistently improve policies, programs and laws that affect our lives. We should get that. Thomas. Kerry, how will constitutional recognition of voice deliver better Indigenous policies than in the past, do you think? Well, that, that, that flows. God, don't trust me with technology. <laughs> Is that all right? Yeah. Um, that, that, uh, that flows on very neatly from what Thomas has just been talking about, uh, Liz, because uh, uh, the... the if you look at all of those different voices, there have been elements of policy happening through those periods where gains were made. But, but it's like the two steps forward and one step back and the one step forward and two steps back, gains get made but then they get taken away. And um, uh, you, had, you had in those earlier times, well really all the way through to the Howard years, uh, where it took a long time for 
um, dominantly white bureaucrats and white politicians to actually learn uh, to accept the strange concept that Indigenous people might actually know something about the things that would affect them and how to, how to, imp how to how, firstly, how to shape the policy and then how to implement it. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, so the thing is that there was no consistency. There was no consistency. And uh, so often, Marcia Langton, uh, Thomas and I uh, gave evidence at the parliamentary uh, committee, the joint party committee that was determining the, uh, the wording for the referendum. And uh, we sat through quite a bit of evidence, including Marcia Langton and uh, Tom Karma, who after the Uluru uh, statement was passed, they then had another process that uh, happened under the Morrison government, which was, it was called the co-design process to actually look at the possibilities of what a voice might be. And they then consulted, after all those consultations with the Uluru dialogues, they then consulted another 110 Indigenous communities around Australia involving 10,000 people. And what Marcia talked about was this: was the, 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 the consistent theme that kept emerging, we want a voice, we need a voice, we want to be heard. And people would talk about the fly-in, fly-out bureaucrats. They would, they would drop in like cargo cultists from the sky and they would have their pens and they'd write copious notes and they'd ask very, very learned questions and they'd nod a lot. Uh, and they might even make some promises and then they'd go away and in many cases never to be heard from again or when the policy outcome came back it had nothing to do with the advice that was given to them. So when, when we hear of the litany of failures of policy in relation to Indigenous people and people complain about money being wasted. The implication, way more often than not when you hear those, those complaints, is that somehow or other it's the Indigenous people themselves who've wasted it. And they, they've had to wear that over generations. They've had to wear it. So there were, there were let's say, a sprinkling of governance issues. When you look at the, at the governance of our parliaments, you look at the governance of our governments, you look at the governance of all our institutions, white-driven institutions, and you look at their failures, you look at their abuses, and then somehow or other there's this other category over here, Indigenous people are not to be trusted. And they've had to wear that, they've had to wear the policy failures far more than the people who've actually formulated the policies. Uh, so, so you've had those policy failures, on policy failures, on policy failures. Kevin Rudd gets up in the parliament in 2008 uh, and makes a formal apology to the stolen generations. Uh, that was the forum that uh, Peter Dutton walked out on. He since said he made a mistake. Not long, not long before he announced that he was opposing the voice. Um, but but uh, after that formal apology, that's when the process began of a formal measuring of the many gaps of inequity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians the most marginalised group in this country. So how, do, how does it change with the voice? Well, for a start, you will have a body that will be, and this is why it's called the voice, it will be the voice of the people of the communities that elect those people. So those, I'll call them delegates, whatever you want to call them, councillors, delegates. But, uh, but they will be listening, they'll be consulting with their communities on the issues, and it might be about housing, it could be about 
uh, one of the numbers of problem aspects of education and of health, of housing, of other infrastructure and so on. They listen to the communities. Together with the communities, they work out what they think is the right policy ideas for the, 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 the question that's before the parliament, before the government. The voice, uh, they, that, that will then be, um, uh, uh, that, that will be collated, if you like, with the, with the feedback from other delegates, from various other indigenous areas, indigenous regions, remote communities and so on. Uh, and there'll be, there'll, there'll be common elements on those big ticket items. I mean, a lot, a lot of smaller, let's, you know, in, in, in my, my shire, in the Byron Shire, we'd call it parish pump stuff. So the local, the local stuff. That would be local voices, that would be local representation, but we're talking about the national representation, they'd be the big ticket items. They'd be looking for those areas of common ground, they would take it to government. And, the, and they'd take it to the department, they'd take it to the, they'd, they'd have conversations with the department, they'd take it to the minister, their advice would go to the cabinet and be considered. When the legislation is in draft form, it would be taken to the parliament and, and the parliament would know what, what the indigenous advice was on the issue and the public would know. And so the power of the voice is limited in one sense in that they don't have a power of veto, they can't dictate to the parliament, they can't dictate to government. And the strength that they will muster will be the strength of their arguments, the strength and the quality and the integrity of their arguments. But they will also have the moral and political authority that will be vested in them by us with this referendum. And, and even John Howard the other day said, God, if this voice gets up, how can the parliament deny it? Well, the parliament can deny it. He was trying to have us believe that the force of the voice would be so strong that the parliament would be intimidated and just go along with everything that's proposed. No, John, that's not how it's going to happen. But what will happen is that those parliamentarians will know that they will have exposure if they reject the advice. They'll have to have very good reasons. They'll have to have credible reasons themselves for that advice being rejected. So you see, you have continuity. The voice uh, gains strength over time as it, as it evolves, as it matures, as the rough edges are knocked off, where the parliament, where, where the people themselves, those members of the voice themselves and the parliament and the government see that the structure can be improved, they improve it. And 10 years from now, it's absolutely humming. But even from the very first days, it can be making strong, viable advice and beginning to be effective. And, and I think it is an absolutely credible and reasonable proposition because we've seen how it's worked in the past. When Indigenous people have been listened to, you've had good policy outcomes. And we can give you examples of that. So, so I think it is, a, it is a credible argument to make. It stands to reason. If you have the wisdom, the knowledge of the customs and the traditions of Indigenous communities reflected back to the policy makers through the voice, you will have better outcomes and you will see the gaps start to close. Thank you, Kerry. Thomas, how can The Voice help close the gap and improve cultural safety, including birthing on country outcomes? Yeah, good question. And, and I was just thinking, as Kerry was going through that, that's the way that we work, right? As unions, representative bodies, it's, it's a no-brainer. You know, we can't force the parliament to do something as nurses and midwives union, right? Um, but we can influence them. 
with good sense, you know, with organising, you know, that's, that's the way you get changed. So I think that sort of answers your question too. That's how we get things done. Um, and what the voice will do is it'll, it'll save money by getting better outcomes for every dollar spent and it will save lives, okay? Because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't want waste either. You know, we don't want to see money going to other places, you know, to, uh, you know, not reaching the ground. You know, we don't want to see money going into programs that are wasteful and not working. We want to see outcomes because it's our families and it's our communities, you know, and it's fellow Australians and we should all have an interest in making change in this space. Um, and the voice will do that. One, the, my answer to your question is that they, the voice will be able to um, promote, you know, and bring attention to programs that are successful. And I know, I think it's in Nowra, um, Wanjaning, no? Waminda, Waminda. There's, there's a great, you know, they're doing really great work in that space. Uh, and so the voice would, you know, take those successful programs and promote it around the place, um, you know, speak to the federal parliament about making sure that this becomes a national program. It becomes the norm. Um, and for programs that are wasteful and failing, then we'd be calling those things out. And that's where you'll get the savings, uh, you know, in both ways. Thanks. Thank you, Thomas. Kerry, what other positive impacts would constitutional recognition bring to improving the lives of First Nations people as you see it? Well, at the heart of this, uh, along with the practical outcomes, which are just really about basic fairness. You know, we call ourselves, uh, what, what are we? We're, um, um, we, we, um, everyone's mate, you know, we're all equal. Well, we're not. But, uh, but the least equal part of this society uh, is, is Indigenous Australia. And even when you look at, at any given time in this country, there's somewhere between 13 and 16% entrenched poverty. People living on or below the poverty line. And just as is the case in so many other areas, Indigenous people are massively overrepresented within that, within that uh, uh, 13 to 16% of poverty. So, um, so, and I'm sorry, I've, I, I got off track on, on the question. Oh, yeah. Other Look, positive impacts? Yeah. Look, uh, the, the fact is that, that um, uh, my generation and all the generations before mine and even a couple of generations after mine have grown up, non-Indigenous, have grown up in complete ignorance of that part of our history. The 65,000 years, the significance of that, the foundation stone for what our nation is today, um, plus, importantly complete ignorance of the story of colonisation and its impact on Indigenous people and even post-colonisation, the stolen generations and all these things. There was an anthropologist named Bill Stanner, he was the preeminent anthropologist of his time, uh, presented the Boyer Lectures on the ABC in 1968 and he called his lectures The Great Australian Silence and some at least of you would have heard of that, The Great Australian Silence. Uh, and he likened it to, uh, to looking out through a window onto the landscape of Australia except that the window was positioned in such a way that a very large and highly important part of that landscape couldn't be seen. You could not see it. It was absent. And that's been a deliberate thing, 
a deliberate thing. It's not accidental that, we've, that we grew up in such ignorance about such a big part of our history. It's incredibly important that we know that history and we face up to that history because it is our story as well as it is the Indigenous history story. This is the nation that we share. How can we take pride in our nation? How can we talk on our nation to our children and our grandchildren when such a big part of it is absent? So, so the, the, this is like a... It's like this really slow progression towards the point we've arrived at now with this referendum potentially opening up, opening up that landscape, moving the picture, making the frame bigger. We all come into that picture. We all see the whole picture. Noel Pearson talks about, about the, three, the three strands of our national narrative. The indigenous strand where the foundations were laid. The, the British colonial strand which was the implant uh, of British democracy, the British democracy model on us. And yes, we have prospered from that substantially, despite its deep and, uh, and, and ever-growing imperfections. And then the third strand, the, the great flow of multicultural Australians coming in to bring their richness uh, to, uh, to our nation. And it's, it is those three strands that we need to see and understand. And when we do see those strands, when we embrace those strands, and when we embrace recognition, we are better for it. We are a genuinely united nation for the first time, really. We, feel, we can feel whole. But the other thing, very quickly, about, about, um, about what the, where the benefit lies, there is so much other wealth of knowledge and wisdom in Indigenous culture that we can all benefit from, and the voice over time can reflect that. How long will it take to close the gaps? I don't know. Three years, five years, eight years, 12 years? It's not gonna be an overnight process, obviously. But the voice, the voice can be expansive. The voice can, I mean, after the, after the great fires of those last couple of years, those awful fires uh, down Eastern Australia, suddenly, seasoned non-Indigenous firefighters are talking about what we can learn from Indigenous fire customs. That's just one very small illustration of how much more there is for us all to gain. When the voice becomes established as an institution that is a part of our democracy, it is a part of the whole and it is making a broad contribution to the wider knowledge, the wider wisdom, the wider policy making and a better Australia. Thank you. Thomas, do you believe the voice will make a difference and why is this significant for all Australians? And I guess that includes the ones that are really unsure and don't understand um, the certain aspects as you've both been explaining so eloquently to us. Oh, yeah, um, of course. Yeah, I absolutely believe the voice will make a difference. I mean, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this. Uh, for no other reason than knowing that everything else that we're trying isn't working. You know, uh, in the tradition of our union movement, I supported uh, more than just, you know, we used our strength on the wharves, not just for our own wages and conditions, but to support social justice struggles 
and uh, and our own people's struggles against injustices, like when Tony Abbott cut hundreds of millions of dollars, over five hundred million dollars, from frontline community services in around 2014. Um, you might remember it. There was national protests around it, but it didn't stop Abbott, um, you know, doing what he did. Um, it led to the WA Parliament announcing that they were going to cut, you know, cut off services to over a hundred communities. Uh, and it was just awful. And I want you to think about this, actually. Uh, um, when those services were cut from those, uh, you know, over $500 million from frontline services, that was cutting services to families with babies or that were just about to have a baby, you know, children with fetal alcohol syndrome because alcohol is a big problem, not because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have an alcohol problem, but because of the traumas that we've suffered from and those failed policies and harmful laws and you know all of those things that have been done to our people because of the poverty you know um, but those children needed those services and you think about earlier this year Peter Dutton flying to Alice Springs flying in and flying out you know the the contradictions are plenty but flying into Alice Springs and saying that you know the the youth crime in Alice Springs was a reason not to have a voice now, those, those funding cuts were done when we didn't have a voice, when we didn't have a line of defence, you know? And they have repercussions. Those children, those families needed those services and now they're disaffected and running around on the streets, you know? There's a reason why and it's not because of who we are as Indigenous people. And it goes to that important part in the Uluru Statement and I'll recite it to conclude, but, you know, Proportionately with the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. So, you know, it cannot be a matter of our culture and a matter of who we are, our heritage, that we have these issues. If you think that, then you are a racist because you think that we're inferior. There must be a political and structural problem that we can fix as Australians, and that is why we have proposed a voice enshrined in the Constitution. Can, can I just tack on to that? That, that uh, there's been a lot of confusion created around particular aspects and and I spoke earlier about the business of we don't know enough about what the voice will look like well we don't know enough about what the voice will look like because the people who will frame what the voice looks like will be the government of the day and the parliament it won't be us we can make assessments about it and we can we can make decisions on how we vote the next time when a general election comes up but but then there are these other things uh, people you know in in, in the Mabo judgment and, and back, going all the way back to land rights, people were supposed that when the scaremongers moved in, uh, suddenly people living in suburban Australia were told that they were going to lose their backyards. Gee, that happened. And when, when the WIC judgment also on native title was brought down, which related to pastoral leases, uh, pastoralists were told that they were going to lose their farms. Gee, that happened too. I mean, in truth, after the WIC judgment and John Howard brought in his 10-point plan, he actually weakened the native title legislation that had come in after Mabo. 
So no, pastoralists did not lose their farms, people did not lose their backyards. No, Australians living in their suburban homes or elsewhere in their, on their own property will not be paying some kind of rent as a result of the voice being created. Any more that Indigenous people will be determining where our nuclear submarines are going to be based when they eventually arrive here in 2096. <laughs> so, you, you know, when, when, if you feel confused about, about uh, an issue, and there are different sides getting ventilation uh, in the media about that issue, particularly if, in some cases, as I suspect, those who are opposing uh, this referendum uh, have made the decision to oppose it and then gone looking for reasons to explain why. So, so that's how some of these things have emerged. Like, for instance, uh, oh, well, uh, Indigenous people want to be able to make representations to executive government. Duh. <laughs> why wouldn't they? That's where it starts. If a policy is going to emerge into the parliament, it actually starts within a government department in dialogue between the minister uh, and, and the departmental policy makers. It might have come from the public in some form, but that's where it starts. The minister takes it to cabinet for approval, and if it's Labor, it goes to their caucus or goes to their party room. Then the, the legislation's written, and, it go, and it's determined in debate in both houses of the parliament. So... It has to go to executive government. It would have been a travesty not to have included executive government in the capacity of Indigenous people to make representations on policy. So the second part of that attempt to, to cause fear and confusion uh, was, oh, look, they can make representations on all sorts of stuff, a la submarine bases or paper clips or parking fines or, you know, trivia. No, it's not going to happen. Really? After all these decades of activism, after a century of activism, Indigenous people, instead of seriously making serious representations reflecting the views of Indigenous communities, are going to engage in folly? Bullshit. <laughs> and then the second strand? Oh, well, if they don't get their way, they're going to run off to the High Court and make frivolous claims to the High Court. So they're going to bring government to its knees and then they're going to clog up the High Court. Well, we've got, we've got uh, a former Chief Justice of the High Court. We've got at least one other former Justice of the High Court. So that's Robert French. One other highly credentialed and highly respected by both sides of politics uh, high, court, high Court judge in, in Kenneth Hayne. Uh, you've got the preeminent constitutional law academics in people like Anne Toomey and George Williams. And you've got preeminent... Uh, uh, cases they are now, or senior counsel, who are appearing monotonously before the High Court, all saying the same thing as they did the day Thomas and I were at that committee hearing, and they all laid it out for us. They, they, they used the legal language, and then they used language that we could all understand. And it was the same thing. Bullshit. <laughs> that was the word used, wasn't it? Well, it was certainly the word I muttered under my breath. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastical doomsaying was the word that Brett Walker used. He said it's fantastical doomsaying. It's not going to happen. It's not going to clog up the government in court. And, and if you want to look at, these, at the other areas that they're throwing at it, I mean, they're still trying to say there'd be a veto. Uh, they're, they're saying it'd be like... Uh, some people would still have us believe it's, it's got the, it'll have the powers of a separate 
parliamentary chamber. It's like John Howard and, and, and his colleagues when they were opposing ATSIC back in 1988 or 89, they talked about it as, they talked about ATSIC as a black parliament. Uh, John Howard said then that it would divide this nation just as he and others are now saying it again. The voice will divide the nation. The voice will unite the nation. As so many, so many experts are saying, including the Solicitor General of Australia. The Constitution is not under threat from this document. Your backyards are not under threat and you're not going to be paying rent. Thank you. That's very clear. Thank you very much. Look, um, I guess to both of you, it was for you, Kerry, but to both of you very briefly because we need to wind up, how can we ac actively participate in promoting the voice? Kerry doesn't do briefly. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll do it. Um, so basically, uh, <laughs> I want you to all to do more than vote yes, okay? I want you to make a list of everybody that you can possibly speak to. Uh, you know, write it down if you need to. Systematically work through that list. Have a conversation. And you'll be surprised how many people will be moved by just by you saying, I've looked into this. I know it's safe. I know it's meaningful. I'm voting yes, and I want you to vote yes too. So please do that firstly. Secondly, I would like you to go to the Yes23 website uh, and sign up as a volunteer. Uh, we need volunteers. We've got over 30,000, so you'll be joining quite an army of people getting out there and helping Australians to understand what they're voting for. Uh, we need to be, do door knocking, uh, you know, the phone banking, the leafleting at train stations and all of that. If you haven't volunteered yet, please do, and uh, please give us your time. Because time is short, uh, the date was announced, 14th of October. Uh, we only have around six weeks until then, probably less now. So we need to, um, you know, do something about making sure that we win this. Because if we lose, if we lose, it's not just the status quo. And the status quo is bad enough, right? Status quo is bad enough. But if this goes down, it's worse. The self-esteem that we would lose as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and as a nation that we couldn't achieve this modest and important proposal, take this forward, um, will be devastating. Uh, we won't be closing the gap because nothing else has worked. Okay, it'll get worse. Uh, and also, the whole world will look at us and wonder what a backward country we are. Yep. Exactly. You know, we're the only country, we're the only like nation that hasn't recognised Indigenous people in the Constitution and we're the only ones that keep silencing Indigenous people over and over again. So we've got to do this. We've got to do this. So please help us out. Thanks. Thank you. So unfortunately, we do have to wind up. We could have sat here for quite a while longer, I think. We know this referendum will be won or lost by the conversations had with our com people in our communities. Delegates, if you haven't already, you're invited to join the unions um, for Yes campaign and, as Thomas said, the Yes 23 um, committee. Take part in leading some of those conversations with friends and family. The Voice to Parliament Handbook is a fa fantastic explainer of why voting yes at the referendum is an opportunity for all of us to come together. Their copies are available for purchase today during the lunch break outside the theatre in the foyer area. Thomas and Kerry have agreed to stick around to sign a few copies. I've already got mine. <laughs> Delegates, please join me today in thanking Thomas and Kerry for being with us.